Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. Professor Ronaldo Walcott believes there is another side to property risk that is so much more dangerous than the possible loss of chattels. In Ronaldo's view, property isn't subject to risks. It creates risks, acting as a barrier to freedom. Ronaldo is an associate professor at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, the director of Women and Gender Studies Institute, and the author of On Property. In On Property, Rinaldo challenges us to imagine an abolitionist future where policing as we know it today doesn't exist and society is animated by shared wealth rather than the private accumulation of capital. He doesn't think more black people in positions of authority is enough to achieve freedom for black people. Rinaldo believes it's necessary to reorganize our society more fundamentally. Has Rinaldo given up on equality and humanity's better nature? Nope. He'll tell you. He is a relentless optimist, willing to take the risk of rewriting the source code of our society. And he wants you to join him. Happy Black History Month. Thank you for joining me, Rinaldo. And welcome to At Risk. Thank you for having me, Jody. So tell me, what is an abolitionist future? So, Jody, an abolitionist future is the desire and the will and the philosophy to remake the world in, in a fashion and a way where we can once and for all um, be rid of the kinds of inequalities that have shaped our lives um, up until now. So it's an idea, but it's also a practice. Yes, it's both an idea and a practice. The practice begins in, in the context of thinking about what prisons and incarceration, especially what prisons and incarceration has meant for Black and Indigenous communities in North America and then throughout the world. And then it carries through much further into thinking about what it would be, what would be what would it be necessary for us to do to create a world where prisons and incarceration is no longer needed and that's where it it morphs into a set of ideas and a philosophy about how we might be able to live better together collectively and in your treatise on property you really zero in on how the concept of property is the root of the problem. What led you to that? Well, as I note in the book, I, I was born in Barbados, um, lived most of my life in Canada. But um, Barbados is one of the oldest um, ex-slave societies in the Americas. And one can't help but having been born and spent some significant amount of one's life in a place like that, come to see and to understand how an idea about property, both private and public, shapes how we live with each other. But also uh, my years of being a university professor 
and teaching in the area of Black studies has given me a keen awareness of how property has shaped social relations across time. Of course, Black people, by and large, ended up in the Americas because we were bought to the Americas as property. So I argue in the book that ultimately, um, Black people have a different and a more intimate relationship to property than most other people do because our very bodies were claimed as property by others. And you also talk about how, in many ways, the plantation is still with us today in our culture. Yes, I do. And what I mean by that is that many of the social relations, many of the practices of who is seen as authoritative, um, who is seen as valued in society, take um, the kind of imprimatur from the logic of the plantation. So one of the reasons that we find in North America and even throughout the Caribbean in those punitively um, Black nation states of, of, of the Anglo-Caribbean, which I know best, is that um, those people who are the descendants of the enslaved find themselves still living lives of subordination. They find themselves also living lives in which it is assumed that white people have authority over them. And one of the ways in which this is manifest is through the logic of policing. So we find that when police encounter black people, black people are somehow always suspect. And this is not radically different from when, you know, enslaved black people went beyond their master's house or went beyond their master's um, plantation. They too were considered suspect. And indeed, you know, the idea of carrying a note to say that you could move around um, began in slavery, which is not very different from in our contemporary culture where a police officer might stop someone and ask to see their ID, um, ask them to identify where they live, ask them to identify why they're in a particular neighborhood, and so on. And when you address what you want to see happen to the police, you're very clear that reform is not enough. Why? Well, you know, since the middle of the 20th century, since the 1970s and into our present time, um, there have been many and numerous police reforms. And yet one of the things that we continue to see with all of those reforms is that Black and Indigenous people still seem to bear a disproportionate amount of police violence that the violence that Black and Indigenous communities experience is so outsized to, to, the, to the proportion of the population that they occupy that one can't help that, but come to understand that policing is in many ways, not only, but in many ways, launched against um, these communities. And so what we've, one of the, what we've seen with police reforms are things like um, oversight councils. Um, we've seen things like um, adding um, 
indigenous and black police officers to various police services and forces. And these kinds of reforms, um, we've seen um, body-worn cameras. And these kinds of reforms have actually not in any way stemmed the violence that police inflict on black and indigenous communities. In fact, in some ways, it's helped to rationalize that violence. And, and, and by so doing, um, any sober thinking person can only come to the conclusion that policing is at the root of the violence that keeps some communities subordinated. And the only response to dealing with that subordination is to um, abolish policing as we know it. Is there a model that, or, an, or has another country done this well that, that you think Canadians should look to? Well, there, there, there aren't any countries that have as yet abolished policing totally. But there are countries, the Norwegian countries, for example, have engaged in forms of policing that have significantly reduced the need for incarceration. They've also engaged in forms of policing that have significantly reduced the need for police violence. Now, having said that, in the Canadian context, that even those of us who might not ever find ourselves um, involved in the kind of conflict that would require the police, we have come to believe that the police is absolutely necessary. So police has this, policing has this hold on our imagination that really stops us from thinking about other ways in which we can deal with, with violence and conflict. And I would add to this then that at the micro levels in a number of communities, um, people are trying to find ways to work around policing. And um, in feminist communities, in radical community, collectivist communities, um, people have found ways of using various articulations of community accountability to avoid involving policing and police in matters of conflict. And so we're seeing this at a micro, at a micro level. And so people are working towards that kind of future. You know, reading your book, it, it reminded me um, of a moment. Um, I, I, I'm a lawyer by training. I went to law school and I remember sitting in a criminal law class first year and uh, one of my fellow students had a criminology background. That was uh, the focus of his undergraduate studies. And I remember him raising his hand and said, you know, we're almost finished this class and we've never heard the word rehabilitation yet. And that really struck me, you know, and I think, you know, the other sort of context in which I've thought about prisons, um, but as well as policing, is mental health. And, you know, it's such, there's such a huge treatment opportunity uh, to, to help people uh, when they are in the prison system and to reimagine what that experience could be that 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 there is a potential 
that we could actually do some good instead of what happens now where more people exit uh, the penal system with mental health challenges uh, than those who enter it. Yes, I, I think that you have pointed to one of the real significant contradictions with policing and, and the culture of imprisonment that we have, that in fact, policing, imprisonment are actually forms of violence. And what we've been doing for a long time is using forms of violence to combat other forms of violence. And of course, um, the policing over the, la policing over the last 20 or 30 years um, with the downloading of so many different kinds of social services, the police have become first responders um, to many more things than simply conflict and crime. And one of, the, one of those things have been in places like Canada and the US um, that the police have become first responders to people dealing with mental health issues. And, you know, because I was writing this book right up to the clock, I was able to include in it, you know, um, statistics from, from 2020, where in out of nine cases across the country that the CBC was able to document, where the police were called to intervene with someone suffering from mental health issues, all nine cases resulted in death. To have those kinds of statistics is to say how deadly wrong our vision of what it means to engage with people in distress is. And so part of what an abolitionist politics does is, it asks us that in the context of thinking about the abolition of policing as we presently know it, that we don't simply take um, those funds and relegate them to, um, to some other sphere, but that what we do is we expand the services that are needed for people who need care, who need support, and that we think very differently about what our economy means. So that instead of investing in policing and surveillance, we invest in healthcare and the kinds of social supports that are needed for people who have mental health issues and other kinds of challenges to live lives of comfort and care. For me personally, one of the most exciting aspects of thinking or rethinking uh, the monies invested in policing is to not only think about how different people could respond to different kinds of incidents. So, you know, the best example, you know, being having a social worker respond instead of a police officer to um, a mental health event. But also, you know, the opportunity to think more upstream about our investments so that we don't get to a point uh, of, of an acute incident. Most definitely in cities like Toronto, where, um, you know, the, the, the police budget um, takes up a significant amount of, of, of the city's budget, um, we, see, we, see how problematic, um, we see how problematic the, the expenditure on policing is vis-a-vis -vis 
the kinds of supports that people need in terms of decent pay, decent, decent paying jobs, um, affordable housing, um, available green space, and so on. And what we've seen in, in a 30, 40, 50 year period is that as investments in policing grow, um, issues like homelessness, um, poverty, food insecurity expand. And then policing is asked to deal with those kinds of social problems and social issues. And so an abolitionist philosophy is, is, is exactly what you just said, Jody. It really asks us to think about how we can um, reimagine the collective resources that we share both at the level of the city, the province, the nation state, and globally to think differently then about what it means to live, to live a life, to live a life that is worth living, um, a life that might be fulfilling, um, to live differently, as I said, to live differently collectively together. And an abolitionist philosophy really asks us then to think concretely and sustainably about what do we need to do to demonstrate how we care for each other in ways that our lives can be can be deeply fulfilling. I want to talk about some of the personal experiences you shared in the book and how they've informed your view. They're very very powerful excerpts in the book where where you're willing to share some of your experiences, and one of those relates to the experience of protesting and how that has informed your views as about rethinking how we invest in policing. Yes. So it was really important for me to give examples of why someone might develop an abolitionist philosophy and abolitionist consciousness and want to engage in work to change um, not just policing and the culture of imprisonment, but begin to do the kind of work in which a politics of care comes to be the, sig- the, the most significant and important lens through which we, we, we view living well together. And, and you know, I really um, came to understand how policing had transformed uh, when I took to the streets with friends and colleagues to protest the G7, G20 meetings in Toronto. Um, as we marched from from, from the east end of Toronto over to um, the west end and we passed Young Street and we're moving towards um, the, the Toronto Police Services headquarters on College Street. It was my very first time where I experienced what we now come to know is called Ketelin. And we were surrounded by police dressed in all black batons, shields, helmets, beating them in unison and, um, and surrounding us, basically kettling us. And in those moments, one is face to face with what I said earlier about policing being, being violence. Um, one sees the violence of policing. One experiences it in, in every, in every pore of your body and you begin to see how it is that 
policing can't do what we are told it's supposed to do, which is to interrupt violence, which is to stop violence, because policing itself is a form of violence. You also write about riots as something that is different than protest. Can you can you talk a little bit about um, the role of a riot and and how it might be more effective than protest? Yes. You know, one of the things that I wanted to convey in the book around riots is that riots have a history, and especially for Black people and people who are the descendants of the enslaved, that that history of riots comes from what our ancestors were able to do and achieve on plantations, that our ancestors experienced what would appear to be total forms of captivity, total forms of coerced labor, did not simply settle into um, that role of subordination, but they responded and resisted by burning crops, by destroying tools, um, by threatening the lives of the masters and the overseers and so on. And by doing that, um, the, the, the bonds of captivity were often adjusted. So we know from the study of slavery and plantation slavery that when the enslaved responded to their captivity, that the masters would sometimes give them a plot of land, give them time off, momentarily recognize familial relations and bonds and so on. And similarly, in the contemporary era, since the mid-1960s in the U.S. in particular, um, where we've seen um, significant forms of Black rioting, a Black riot is an uprising, and it draws from that history of enslavement. Um, it's a way of seizing the attention of the dominating community and forcing them to reckon with the immediacy of the situation. And because rioting portends the possibility that the very structure of the society might, might, might fall apart, that the resistance might do something much bigger than the society is willing to bear at that time. What rioting does is it really pushes at the possibility that the whole society could come apart. And so it, it provides those in power the opportunity and outlet to respond to um, the, the, the deep dissatisfaction that a riot, that a, that a, that a riot is evidence of. And we've seen this since the mid 20th century in the US. We've seen it in the UK. We've seen it in France. And we've seen it to a lesser extent in the Canadian context. But we do have the 1992 riots in Toronto that led to the Stephen Lewis report and which gripped the then NDP government of Ontario to immediately respond with job training and other kinds of initiatives to help young Black people. And most recently, of course, we've seen the rioting. The thing that drives this book was of course, the, 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 the massive global upheaval around the death of George Floyd 
and um, we've seen um, city councils across the U.S. and at the state and federal levels attempts to respond, in particular to questions of policing um, due to due to those rights in Minnesota. Um, so rioting is a particularly important element of Black people in particular, asserting um, at a particular time their deep dissatisfaction with the way in which their lives are being shaped by dominant forces. So the riot, as, as Martin Luther King said, is to paraphrase Martin Luther King, the riot is the voice of the unheard. And even though, as I point out in the book, King remained firmly committed to um, nonviolence as, as his own philosophy for change, um, embedded in, in that idea of King is something really, really important for us to, to sit with. Now, thinking about all that you've said about uh, how we can reimagine policing, Help us tie this back to the notion of property and why, even if we were able to completely reimagine policing, why that isn't enough. So the reason why reimagining policing is not enough is that I argue in the book that abolitionist, contemporary abolitionist politics begins with policing, but it can't end there. And what I'm trying to make the case for is that the first abolitionist movement was, was for the abolition of transatlantic slavery and then the abolition of slavery in plantations and cities in the Americas. And my argument is that that kind of abolition is unfinished and that it and that the, the next stage is the abolition of policing and the culture of imprisonment. But ultimately, um, the, even the abolition of policing and imprisonment would not solve the kinds of intractable problems that continue to play Black and Indigenous lives. And that the, the way to, to address those intractable problems is through the abolition of property. And by property, I don't only mean um, property as in land, but I mean all of the various elements that we have now amassed that makes human life possible. So as in land, as in technology, as in information, all of this, I argue, should be collectively owned. All of this, I argue, should be a part of a renewed commons one in which we understand that human beings are only just one element of a fully functioning earth and globe. And if we don't do that, in fact, the continued privatization of property, um, the continued restrictions on, on public property are leading to the kind of planetary destruction that is imminent. So, my argument is that we need to abolish property if we think we can save human life in the planet. That what we've seen over time is from, from the time of transatlantic slavery into our present, that the more we privatize property, 
not only the more violent a society we become, but also that the privatization of, of property brings with it a, a diminishment in the quality of life, not just for human beings, but for the entire globe. And so property owned by individuals and, and, and fenced off is not a life-sustaining proposition that we can afford to keep um, that we can afford to keep rolling with. Now, I think some people would think, okay, but if we look to nation states like Russia or China that you know have ostensibly adopted uh, communist principles, it those those societies are are very violent. Absolutely, and and I think that. I think that one of the things that that this idea of living well and better together and a renewed a renewed engagement with the commons is one that pushes against the idea that what we have seen in China, in Russia, the former Soviet Union um, has been the collective will of the people, and and so. I wouldn't hold those particular societies up as actually offering the collective will of the people. I quote from the African-American geographer, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and, and, and in the book, and she says, uh, abolition is small c communism without a party. And that's the, that's the significant difference that in both of those examples that you gave me, Jody, um, it is not the people who are actually organizing how to live better together. It's the party. And the party in and of itself is an exclusive group. The party in and of itself is equal to our Western democratic notion of the small elite who owns the majority of the wealth, um, who, who are able to fence off property, both as land and as other kinds of material effects as their own. And so, you know, this small C communism without a party is really a philosophical challenge for all of us to figure out how to live and share the proceeds of which human beings are simply a part of on this earth, collectively together. Now, some of uh, our listeners might have read Cast, Isabel Wilkerson's book. And I was asking myself as I, as I was reading your book, might it not be said that property is just one of the tools in the Cast toolbox? rather than the root of the problem. I think that once we once we come to terms with the profound impact of what it has meant that black people were once property and how that idea and practice still continues to underwrite our contemporary social relations that Isabel Winkleson's notion of caste recedes because what's at stake is not simply or merely, if as important as is, a group of people who are locked into 
um, conditions of degradation and material impoverishment. All of that is happening, but something else is also happening. And, and, and the something else that's happening is also the way in which the ideas that literally shape our society beyond the material are organizing our lives. And property is not just simply the land and the resources, but it's this profound idea that really shapes so much of our motivations in contemporary society. We are motivated to think that we're going to be the next ones who have the cherished piece of property. And that plays itself all the way down from, you know, um, imagining that we could be the next Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos to the little tiny cell phone that we might have in our pockets. So property as an idea is this powerful, powerful tool that really keeps a whole lot of us and a whole large part of our society in place. So it's not only about class and caste, it is about the way in which we organize our entire society. I think one of the responses to the Black Lives Matter movement has been a renewed call and a renewed sense of urgency and active steps towards looking at how to improve representation of Black and Indigenous peoples in positions of authority. To, to make more change. So, so that's not, you know, an end unto itself. But the idea that, that, that with greater inclusion and greater representation, we can get closer to a society that is more equitable for all peoples who form a part of it. But you don't think that's enough. Do, do, do I read that correctly? Yes, you're correct. I, I don't think that's enough. Um, I think that inclusion and representation in a system that is fundamentally built on the perpetuation of inequality doesn't get at the heart of how we might live better together, collectively together. So, you know, I, as you know, I, I work in a university and I've worked in a university for the last 25 years of my life. So about half of my life. And universities are places that the language of representation and inclusion and equity um, is central to universities and, and their missions. And, and university presidents and provosts like to give lovely speeches about these things. But if you were to look at the university as a microcosm of how equity, diversity, and inclusion work, you will walk away feeling deeply pessimistic because over my 25 years of encountering this kind of language in the university, the university has changed very, very, very little. But equally, as I had said earlier around you know, um, policing, one of the things these same languages and ideas have been used in policing as well. At this, in the city of Toronto, we've had a black police chief. Right now, 
in the city of Ottawa, there's a black police chief. And yet what didn't change in either of those cities are the ways in which black people continue to be still harmed by the police. So what we see then is that equity, inclusion, representation, without also changing the structures, the underlying, underpinning ways that, sh that the society shape, um, does not do the work that we think it should do and that we want it to do. And I know that my saying this might come across as pessimistic, but the hard truth is that the evidence is there um, to demonstrate <laughs> that to be the case, sadly so. You take the words out of my mouth. You, you, you actually, in, in the treatise, though, talk about how abolitionist philosophy is deeply optimistic. Yes, because abolitionist philosophy is deeply optimistic because we do not believe that people are naturally bad. We believe that when people have access to the resources to live the kinds of lives that they need to live, that all human beings should be able to live, that conflict and violence decreases. Um, we believe that, um, that when people have access to um, the material wealth that is shared, that people are able to care for each other and to, to relish um, in each other's um, full fullness of life. And that Abolition, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, is also about presence, meaning that we believe that when people are able to share equally in the collective abundance of, of what our earth has to offer, that we are present for each other in ways that are, if you will, and might, might sound a little bit um, hairy-fairy, but in ways that are magical because abolitionists do believe that human beings made from, um, from bone and words are magical beings. You hit on another question I asked myself as I was reading this book, and, that, and that's, is a hierarchy and therefore the relegation of some to privilege a smaller group, is that inherent in the human condition, and and you're I hear you saying a, a resounding no. Is there evidence, though? You know, speaking, you're, you're saying there's no evidence of sort of equitable, uh, you know, equity of opportunity producing good results. Is there any evidence that 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 that, that we're not kind of inherently bad? <laughs> In the book, I write a little bit about the commons and this idea of the commons, which you know, um, first comes out. Of, of what we now call Europe was an idea where people shared in the bounty of the lands that they occupied. And then somehow um, the commons became restricted as hierarchy became a part of how people formed their communities. And eventually monarchies came to um, encircle the commons to fence off the commons and to claim the commons as the monarch's property, offering the people access to it 
only as they might then use it to pay tribute to the monarch. But in indigenous cultures around the world, both, both in North America and elsewhere, the idea of the commons still exists. In fact, part of what we see with um, a lot of tension between indigenous communities and the Canadian nation state is that there are different, the two different notions of, of what land, property, and resources mean. And of course, indigenous communities are in some ways drawing on a notion of the commons, that we are all, when indigenous communities make the claim of being stewards of the land, protectors of the land, protectors of the water, that they're making a collective claim. Um, they're making a non-hierarchical claim. Um, they're making a claim for human beings as being a part of the environment and not the ruler of the environment. And so that's a different worldview. And it's a worldview that in the imminent moment of climate change and a climate crisis, that I think that we're going to have to much more urgently take to heart. So even if then there is not a history, even though I do think there is, and indigenous cultures have demonstrated this, not to say that there weren't some indigenous cultures that were also hierarchical, that one of the things about abolitionist politics and abolitionist philosophy is when I said that human beings were magical, is that we also profoundly believe that human beings can learn to live differently. That we don't have to be, that we're not inherently hierarchical. That hierarchical, the hierarchical nature of our societies is something that has been learned. It's something that has been taught to us. And it's something that in fact takes a tremendous amount of violence to keep in place. And we believe that we can learn to do different, that we can learn to live differently, that we can learn to live um, equ equally across difference and to share across difference and to be responsible and ethical across difference. This is a show about risk. And I think one of the things you accomplish in On Property is when we talk about property risk, we normally think of it in terms of property loss. And you flip it and you say, no, 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 no. It's not, property risk is not about potentially losing your property. It's about the risks and the threats and the harms created by property itself. And I found that very fascinating. I'm, re I'm really glad that you saw that in the work because I, I would like to add then that I think that what we have to do is we have to risk, take the risk that we can live differently. And taking that risk that we can live differently means that we have to take the risk that human beings are always malleable, always open to change, and, and that always, um, and that human beings are also always open to new possibility. That it, it's a risk to say, I will trust and care for you, even though I think you and I share nothing in common. The central question of this podcast is, do you truly value something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? What's your response? I think that 
But that's a really interesting and profound question. And, and, and my response is, yes, I agree. And that on property um, and the abolitionist philosophy that I try to articulate here is exactly in accord with that, actually, that we have to risk losing what we, the kind of society that we have built so far so that something newer, something more possible, something more fulfilling, something more life-sustaining can come into being. Professor Ronaldo Walcott, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Jody, and I enjoyed the conversation too.